much like this morning, um, uh, uh, maybe a couple months ago, um, same circumstance, Heather, my wife, was on worship team, I was preaching, so I'm responsible for the children and trying to get a message ready and in my head and praying and all that, so um, I, that morning, uh, was a little impulsive. Um, I remember one of them asked to eat something ridiculous for breakfast. I'm like, sure, eat it. There's like ice cream or something like that. I'm like, fine. Yeah, just eat it. I don't care. Um, I, was, I was definitely a bit controlling. I remember uh, our oldest two were fighting, and I was just like, I don't know. Just be quiet and figure it out. Go upstairs. You know, obviously not helping the situation, not dealing with it. Um, and I was just kind of afraid. Like, what if I forget something in the diaper bag, and Ian, our two-year-old, comes, and he, he takes his diaper off in the middle of service, and he has poop, poop gets all over. I mean, just all of those irrational thoughts. I mean, not, I mean, it actually could happen, but just worst-case scenario things running through your head. And that, that was my morning. Just, I, I was a functional atheist, because I, I remember that morning until I actually got here, like standing here. <laughs> uh, probably wasn't one of my better sermons, but... Uh, I remember that not, I had very little thought of God in my head that morning, to be honest. Versus another morning, um, today actually, um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that Heather, my wife, set me up for a win and got a lot of stuff prepared ahead of time. However, um, when I consciously focus on the fact that, okay, God is here with me, in a circumstance like that, certainly still have the same challenges and certainly still made some mistakes this morning, but when I'm dependent on God in prayer in those circumstances, in stressful situations, and invite God into those situations, because he's already there, right? But when I just recognize that he is there, it changes things, changes the whole morning, it changed the the way this whole morning went. Um, So we have a choice all the time to live as a functional atheist or as a real believer in Jesus who believes that he's right there with us. And in Genesis, in the the chapters we're in this morning, 25 to 27, that's what we see. We're going to see Isaac and Rebekah living like God is actually there with them. But we're going to see their sons, their twin sons, Jacob and Esau, live like only they are there with them. Living like only I am here versus God is here. So that's where we're going. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis 25. We're going to pick up in chapter 19 at the the end. And this is a great, while you're turning there, 2519, what we see here with Isaac and Rebekah is really a life of dependency. The, The main marker of their lives is living like God is actually here in the room with me. So we see that with them. Genesis 2519, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. He's dependent. He prays because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she did what? She went to inquire of the Lord. She's dependent. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So in this section, we see that Isaac prays for a child when Rebekah is barren in verse 21. 
Prayer is the gut response of someone who is dependent on God. When things are difficult, when things are not difficult, I'm praying. I'm depending on God because God is here and He deeply cares about me and this situation. Rebecca does this too, right? She's pregnant with twins. And when the twins start wrestling, I can't imagine twins wrestling, right, Johnstons? And that probably, you know, can't imagine brothers wrestling, but here they are, they're causing trouble. And prayer is her gut response in a confusing situation. They're dependent because God is there. She is dependent on God because she, she realized God makes order out of chaos. See, this is just the way of life for Isaac and Rebecca. They live this, this life that whatever happens, I'm dependent on God. God, I need you. You are here. Help me. Guide me. Teach me. God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's, that's how they live. They also did this by, by listening to God. If you'll look a few verses ahead to chapter 26, verse 1. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell on the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God speaks to Isaac, and he listens. He tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt. And he promises, I'm going to give you this land. Go here. And he even promises in verse 4 that all will be blessed through his offspring. This is the same promise he gave to Abraham. Now he's continuing with Isaac saying, hey, I am going to bless your offspring. But in your offspring, there's going to be someone who's going to bless everyone on this earth. And that is the gospel, the good news in Genesis. It's pointing to Jesus who would offer salvation to anyone who would believe. Right here in Genesis chapter 26. But then, if you keep, if you keep going in verse 24 of 26, he continues to listen to God. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. See, in order to hear God, you have to listen to Him. You have to pay attention to Him, that He is around, that He is in the room. We know that Isaac listened to God, not just because we see God speaking here, but because, God, because Isaac obeyed God. When you actually hear God and listen to God, you obey Him. So we see in 26 verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. Now that verse maybe seems insignificant, like not a big deal, it's really short. But think about it like this, when, when famine strikes in this day and age, you go to Egypt. Okay, they've got the Nile, the Delta region there, so things were fertile. They had food when no one else did. They had water when no one else did. You go to Egypt, but instead he obeys God's voice and doesn't go down to Egypt and stays in Gerar. 
In verse 25, it says, He built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. He, he responds with obedient worship. He builds an altar. He worships. I trust you, God. I don't know how this is going to work out. There's a famine in the land. Not sure how this is going to happen. I, I really want to go to Egypt, but I trust you, God. I'm going to obey you. Isaac and Rebekah lived lives like this. Dependent lives. Prayerful lives. They listened to God. They obeyed God. That's a portrait to us of what it looks like to live like God is actually in the room with you. Imagine for a second that, that your best friend was with you all the time. You, they're there, you can process things with them, get advice from them when you need it, comfort when you need it, accountability, joy, encouragement. This is how it is with God, except even better, because we're talking about Jesus the God of the universe who knows everything and knows what's best right there with us. But it would be absolutely ridiculous if your best friend was with you all the time to live like they weren't there with you. Okay? It would be really awkward actually. Right? They'd just kind of be awkwardly hovering all the time and you're just ignoring them. Why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Right? See, this is why we're called to pray without ceasing. We're coming back to our, our Christian life today. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. It helps us remember that he's present, that he's right here in the room with me right now, today. And that has power to change us moment by moment when we realize God is here. And he, he, he made the universe. So if I recognize he is here, it's going to start to change the way I live, the way I interact with other people, the way I worship. And so this is a great portrait to us of living dependently. But let's go to Jacob and Esau. Let's look at them for a second. Jacob and Esau, instead of living dependently, live independently of God. You'll notice in the section about Jacob and Esau, which is at the end of chapter 25 and all of chapter 27, God isn't mentioned in the text. He's just eerily gone. Usually when God is left out of the story in Scripture, things get pretty messy pretty quick. And that's what happens in this story. I, I will say this, though. He is mentioned once, but in a really disrespectful, blasphemous way. But we're going to talk about that a little later. But they're independent. They're living independent of God. I don't need you, God. So we see Esau first, living like only he is in the room, not God. And he's impulsive. So look at 2529. He trades his birthright for soup. 25, 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And just remember that fun Bible fact as you're reading through the Bible. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, and they got their name. Edom means red. They got their name because Esau impulsively is like, here, have my birthright for some red stew. 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright. Now, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, at first glance at this 
passage, you might be like, isn't the problem with Jacob? Jacob deceives his brother. He's a con artist, and you're right, he is. But the text highlights Esau. It ends by saying, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau is actually more in the wrong here. Now, a birthright um, was an inheritance that the firstborn son would get in this culture, and it was a big deal. And in chapter 27, we also see um, this blessing from his father that Jacob swindles from Esau as well. And it may be the same thing, this, this, this birthright and this blessing. They may be different. We're not really sure. But either way, it's a big deal. And Esau impulsively sells his inheritance for a cup of soup. He cared more about feeding his appetite right now, right here, than receiving an irreplaceable blessing. And that's what happens when we, when we just live like only I am in the room. When only I am in the room, I want what I want now. And so what we start to do is we, we throw out things that have eternal value and replace them with things that only have temporal value. Hebrews 12 talks about this. Hebrews 12 talks about this very instant with Esau. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 says that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau lived independently of God, and therefore was impulsive, and it led to brokenness. And that's what happens for us as well, when we're just ruled by the moment, rather than by the fact that God is there with us. But it doesn't end for Esau. Esau is, is more impulsive than that. Um, we see for chapter 27, there's these bookends. So at the end of 26, and then the last verse of 27, we see these foreign women that Esau marries. So look at 26.34. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beeri the Hittite to be his wife, and Basemeth the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Then fast forward 2746. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my wife because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And that might sound super dramatic. You're like, what? what's, the, what's the big deal, Rebekah? Here's the big deal. Esau was not honoring the family tradition and marries Hittite women. He was impulsive. He's like, I want a wife. Uh, there's a woman. You, you. I mean, he's just, I, I want a wife and I want it now. He's impulsive. And he's disrespecting his, his mother and his father in the process. Now, my wife Heather is going through a Bible study right now, maybe with some of y'all. Um, and... They were, they were challenged to come up with an example like a fi of a fictional character that represents Esau. And she came up with Gaston. And I think that that's incredibly right. So Gaston, if you haven't seen Beauty and the Beast, you need to, okay? Beauty and the Beast, fantastic. But um, Gaston is just this like fool of himself, pompous guy. I mean, so, so much so, he, he gets this whole wedding party to come to Belle's house and he's going to ask her 
to marry her, but he hasn't done it yet, right? So he has to go into the house, ask her to marry her. Then they're going to come out and get married on the spot. So he thinks, and he goes, I'd like to thank you all for coming to my wedding, but first, I'd better go in there and uh, propose to the girl. So you can, you can see Esau, much like Gaston, just full of himself. I'm just going to do what I want to do and, and, and live totally independent. And that's Esau. Impulsive, disrespectful, does what he wants. Next we see Jacob and Rebekah get in on living like only they're around, living independently of God. And they, they do this by being controlling or taking matters into their own hands. Jacob controls Esau for the birthright. We already read that section. While Esau is, is wrong for, for being impulsive like that, Jacob was forcing his hand as well. So Jacob is controlling but then Rebekah gets in on it. So let's pick up in 27, verse 1. Rebekah becomes controlling by tricking her own husband, Isaac. 27.1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Here's the deception. Here's the controlling. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Hey, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them for delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. I can relate to that. Uh, perhaps my father will feel me and I, I shall s- seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were there in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Rebecca forgets that God is present. And she acts like a functional atheist. She's seeking control and takes matters into her own hands. I mean, God already told her. When, when, remember when Jacob and Esau were, were wrestling in her womb? She comes to God. Hey, God, what's going on here? And God already told her, hey, Jacob, the younger one, is going to get the blessing. Yet, she's doubting God, or, or at best, forgets God, and tries to ensure it for herself. But Jacob goes along with it, too. Let's keep reading in verse 18. Jacob follows through with it and tricks his, his father Isaac, 18, so he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. 
I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who fell to him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's, brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Jacob here grasps for and tries to take control. He's just living like he is here. I'm going to take care of me. And here's the one time where God is mentioned in this section, 2720. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Jacob doesn't even claim God as his God. He just says to his dad, your, your God gave me success. But on top of that, this is a blasphemous lie. God didn't do this. God had God had no part in this scheme. This was Jacob and Rebekah trying to manipulate and control things. So he just literally pulls the God card out. He's living independent and controlling. I don't need God. And when I do bring him up, I'm just going to use him. See, when we, we live only like God is here, and in, or only like I am here and in the room, We tend to become impulsive. We tend to become controlling. And lastly, we tend to become fear-driven. And that's what we see now with Isaac. Isaac, of all people, gets in on it as well, who's been so faithful this whole time. So go to 26 verse 7. Back up a little bit with me. This section I call Sister Act 3. And you'll see why. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, "Uh, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac? Isaac now? I mean, Jacob, yeah, Esau, even Rebekah, but Isaac? Why did he do this? Here's why. He stopped living dependently on God. He forgot God's presence. And fear took over him. It says that in the text, verse 7. He feared. He's thinking, oh, shoot, he gets in a new place. My wife is beautiful, okay? My wife is smoking. So he's like, shoot, I'm either going to die or she's going to get taken from me or something. So he's afraid, and those are legit fears, right? But the problem isn't the fear itself, It is a scary situation. The problem is that Isaac let fear take the driver's seat. The problem is that Isaac let fear turn him into a functional atheist. See, God was suddenly just gone in his mind. 
And fear took over that driver's seat of his mind. So now we have Jacob, Esau, Rebekah, and even Isaac living independently, impulsively, controlling fear-driven lives. And these are all portraits of what it looks like to live like only I am in the room, not God. But God, being so gracious and gentle, says to Isaac in his very moment of struggle, in verse 12, the very next verse, right after he does this, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. See, God in His grace, right after Isaac's fear-driven sister act, blesses Isaac generously. A hundredfold. Okay, this was in the midst of a famine. And he just becomes a rich man. He blesses Isaac generously. He's, he's shouting to Isaac, not with words, but with actions. Hey Isaac, I am here. Remember me? And isn't that us? Isn't this, this life of Isaac us? I mean, one moment just dependent on God. The next moment, letting fear just totally take the driver's seat. And then the next moment, God gently and graciously reminding us of His amazing presence. So, if you're here and you struggle with impulsively giving in to sinful desires and cravings, the answer isn't to say, hey, stop that. The answer isn't slapping yourself on the hand and saying, hey, quit. No, the answer is remembering that God is there with you. He is better than that sinful craving that you have. He is here to give me strength not to give in to that addiction. He is here and I don't want to disappoint my Father. If you struggle with trying to take matters into your own hands, with control, the answer isn't, hey self, put that thing down. No, the answer is remembering God is there with you. He will give me what I need to provide for my family. He will walk through this valley of the shadow of death with me. Psalm 23.4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. See, when God is with us, we don't have to fear that evil that is right there lurking behind that door. If you struggle with letting fear Worry, anxiety, get in the driver's seat, which we all do at points. The answer is, hey, stop worrying. I'm sorry, it's not. It's not stop worrying. It's fine. Quit worrying. No, the answer is remembering that God is there. And I know that that sounds almost oversimplistic. It's a battle. It's hard. And I want to read something to you that really highlights this battle. And I want you to feel the tension as I read this. Okay? This was something I found a while ago. And I'm going to read Psalm 23. I'm going to read one verse of the real psalm. And then someone else wrote an anti-Psalm 23. And it really highlights 
the, the tension that we feel. So listen to this. Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Anti-Psalm 23. I'm, my, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. Psalm 23.2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Anti-Psalm 23.2. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. Psalm 23.3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Anti-Psalm 23.3, My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want to do, when I want, how I want, but life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Anti-Psalm 23.4, I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Psalm 23.5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Anti-Psalm 23.5, are my friends really my friends? Are other people use me for their own ends? I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me, and I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Psalm 23.6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Anti-Psalm 23.6, disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Feel that tension? That's where life is lived. But here's our hope. When Jesus came to earth, lived the life we couldn't, died horrible death on the cross and rose from the dead, He shouted, I am here with you. And so we can trust moment by moment that Jesus will gently and graciously remind us by His powerful Holy Spirit, even in the midst of that tension and that struggle to live like He is present, Him remind us, I am here. I am here. And that changes everything when we live with that simple reality. God is here with us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your presence. For your presence right here now. You are right here in the room with us, Jesus. I thank you, God, that you are always there in the room with us. No matter what's happening, no matter what's coming at us, no matter what we're facing, God, you are there. And we can be absolutely sure of that. So God, I pray that you would help us to live in that reality. And as we do that, we would discover more and more freedom. I thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for being so gentle with us when we, when we act like fools, when, when we go down paths that, that aren't godly. 
that are against what you say. We thank you for your forgiveness and drawing us back to yourself each and every time, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.